Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Persons Podcast. To learn more about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog at thefourpersons.net. To call into today's show, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. Testaments. 
Um, you know, like for instance, the Old Testament, they started out with 12 tribes, they had an early persecution, and then they had an upward trend of political and military power, rich, richness, until like under King Solomon it peaked. And then I didn't know much about how or, how or what, but I, I did know that by the end of the Old Testament, they were reduced to a very small little seemingly insignificant group. And then I contemplated for a second on, on the history of the church as, as much as I knew it, and I, I thought I saw a similar pattern. I, I thought, well, oh, the church is founded on 12 apostles, and we also have an early persecution as well, the Roman persecution. And we also had that same kind of general trend of um, you know, increasing political, um, military uh, power. It, 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 maybe you can say the high Middle Ages or maybe even into the Renaissance. But then you know, with um, Protestantism and then the, the, the age of the modern world, the church you know, decreased in, in, in worldly significance. So I thought, oh, look, they have a very general uh, trajectory, so to speak. So that was kind of like the, the, that was the, the thought that gave me impetus to kind of try to explore it further. Um, does, that, does that make sense, I guess, so far? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's, and it sounds like a very interesting working theory. Now, did you, have you discovered any other, has anybody else gone down this, down this trail, uh, any other saints or, or persons of the past that you can kind of glean from their writings that they've, they've kind of looked into this? Sure. Um, uh, you, you know, as soon as I – well, I did look into that because once I got – I rolled up my sleeves at some point, and I got real serious about it because I was, I was actually getting scared about what I thought I was seeing. And so that was my first instinct was to look and see, like what you just said. Um, and, um, I, you know, and I have to be honest. I, I, I'm not trying to be prideful or, or – um, uh, what's the other word? Um, I don't even know. I mean, the, the bare fact is no. Uh, I couldn't find anything. It's just this plain and simple fact. Um, I, I, I can talk about that later because there were a lot of saints and even other characters in church history who did see their particular surroundings as paralleled by a certain old um, – that was true with Constantine. It's true with Charlemagne. It was true with actually Hitler as well. Um, they saw like circumstances, and they said, this reminds me of this Old Testament book. And it just so happens that what they saw corresponds with the whole thing that I, I, I was seeing – and so it's this greater confirmation that they saw small pieces that related to them, right, in the context of the greater parallels that I was seeing. So, um, and but there, there have been saints. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's been countless saints who have seen, um, who have seen resonances or parallels with the Old Testament in any number of situations, but no one that I've ever read or seen has contemplated or, or posited the theory that the entire history was was prefigured, and not just prefigured, but chronologically prefigured. Yeah. So um, I, I think that's the big that's the big thing there. That's the big difference between your working theory and what I've seen in the past. Because, as you said, I've seen all kinds of uh, saints and religious figures that have pointed to an Old Testament passage that may point to a, a current event or a or an event in our recent past or something along that that line, but. I've never seen anybody suggest uh, a systematic uh, chronological, um, right. you, you know, format to this. Uh, you're the first person I've seen suggest something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's both scary. It's, it's scary, and I, you know, I, I still don't, I don't know what to say about that. Other than just to simply say, objectively, I, I couldn't find anybody. That's just the objective fact for me. Maybe there are people out there. I don't know of what now. So the first question before we get into the nuts and bolts of this, have you talked to any any priests or religious leaders and 
and gotten their thoughts sure. on it, gotten their feedback on it? What What do they say? I, you know, <laughs> I've tried endlessly, endlessly to try. I've sent emails. At one point, I had, um, I, I wrote a very simple booklet when I was first starting to do this, like seven years ago. I, I've made a simple booklet and I put a, a cover letter and I made 25 of them. And I sent them out to all these different seminaries and, and priories. Um, I've sent emails out. I have never once ever to this day heard any, any like no one's responded. And I, I don't know what to make of that. I honestly have been trying for seven years, and I don't know what to say. So, like, I'm always hoping that, like, someone will go, oh, I'll take that on. Um, so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so, I mean, okay. just believe me, I, I really have been trying to. Um, yeah. I, I've confronted people. I, I've confronted priests about it. I've asked politely. I've asked subtly. I've asked not so subtly. I've tried every approach I can imagine. Um, and I don't know why, and I don't know what to, to say about it. So that's okay. the answer, though. So, so what was the linchpin as far as convincing you that not only are all these events connected to the Old Testament, but they're connected in order. What what was it that got you to the point of of uh, sure making that leap? Sure, to, to make that, that that jump, that conclusion. Um, yeah. I don't know if there was just one, to be honest, because like when I, like I was I was trying to show uh, as I was just saying, the very first thought I had was a very general sketch of how they both seem to. Very, from a very broad point of view, they both seem to parallel without any detail. So I chose to do next was to add some details to it and uh, to see if that can, you know, test it further. And there were successive, successive events that would occur. Like I would, I would test it to a certain detail level and like, oh, it's there. Then I was kind of convinced, but not, not super convinced. I just thought, oh, this is, this is a neat, neat little thing. Then I, I would drill down and I would um, do a little more and I thought, oh, it's really there. And then I got scared because I thought this is really, really there. Uh, if I had to say, to, to be honest, one of the things that really kind of got me uh, the most, um, like the, the Renaissance, finding the Renaissance in the Old Testament, finding Martin Luther in the Old Testament, finding, um, like, well, you know, a big one, to be honest, too, it, this is a hot-button issue, but finding Vatican II in the Old Testament, that was a big one, honestly, as well. Um, so I think the, those kind of big events really cemented it that, that it was true. Um, and I'd be, I mean, we'll, we'll get to, we'll, I know we'll get to them eventually, but um, th- those are the, those are the ones that really got me. And, you know, the idea, I guess, is this, is that, um, you know, we can all see shapes in clouds and it looks like a duck and it looks like a fish, you know, and typology, it can be a little bit like that. And I understand that it's not a science so much as a as poetry or, or an art form. It's more than that. But, but what really convinced me was when like seven or eight events that are, are very arbitrary in nature um, they happen in the Old Testament, and those same events happen in church history. Like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, king David fought a bunch of wars to, to, to kind of, like, make his kingdom safe. And then King Solomon, he brought in, um, he built a temple, and, and uh, he filled it with art and architecture, but he also brought in corruption. And then right after Solomon died, um, this man, Jeroboam, he split the, the tribes of Israel, and the northern part went into apostasy. So I, I go to church history, and I see the same three things. You see wars followed by the building of a temple, followed by riches and wisdom, followed by the North going into apostasy. And that would be the Crusades, followed by the Renaissance, followed by Martin Luther bringing the North of Europe into apostasy. Like, those three successive things are, are to find those three things in the same order in the Old Testament is astounding, you know? Um, so, like, that keeps on happening over and over again, though. And, like, this can't be a coincidence. It's, it's more than just seeing an image in a cloud. This is actually, like, God's church prefigured by the Old Testament, which on its face anyway seems like something God could do anyway. It seems like something that God would allow, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not even implausible anyway. 
So um, I hope I'm answering your questions. It's, it's hard to, to hit these very dense topics. Yeah. So where would you where would you like to start? How would you like to work through this? Sure, sure. Um, well, okay. You know, let, let me at least paint. I'm going to try to go as fast as I can. And and please, if any listeners, go ahead and verify this. But let me paint out the, the Old Testament really quickly. I'll do, I'll do it in a minute. Because um, I, I, it's, you know, sadly, the reality is you can't see these parallels unless you know the Old Testament, right? So, um, and, and I guess what I'd like to do then is um, I've, I've, I've broken down the Old Testament into eight major time periods. And then I'll show those eight, the same exact time periods in church history in the same order. And that way we can get a very bird's eye view of that without getting into the details right away. It, maybe, is that a good idea? Okay. Okay. All right. Um, okay, great. So let me start with the Old Testament, uh, and I'm going to go through each one real quickly. Um, so there's eight time periods. Uh, the, the first time period I, I call beginning and foundation, which is, uh, you know, that's where, the, that's where God founded uh, the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and, and Joseph and the, and the 12 tribes, um, or you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, excuse me, and the 12 tribes of Jacob. Um, so that's, that's period one. Period two is the persecution in Egypt. Uh, period three would be when they, they get out of persecution and they go into the, the promised land. And that's where they have to, the period of the judges, where they're fighting up all the enemies and establishing themselves. Uh, period four is the kingdom period. So now you have King Saul followed by King David and then King Solomon and all the successive kings after uh, Solomon. So that, that's the, t- the period of the kings. And then the, uh, the, the fifth period then would be the, the period of the revolt and the separation where the, the once united um, tribes of uh, Israel are broken in part, and the north goes into apostasy. So now um, that takes us up to, um, I think, the sixth one, and that's going to be um, the, uh, in the invasion period when a foreign army, the Babylonians, comes in and sacks the temple and takes prisoners, the, the Jews. Um, so then you have the, the, uh, the seventh period now is um, after they've been in, in exile for a while, they get to go back to Jerusalem again. And they get to keep it as a city-state, which is very specific. Um, they, they can have um, Jerusalem, but they, they can only have dominion over their little city. And Jewish laws are only relevant inside of Jerusalem. No more do they have any territory or anything like that. And then the, the, the final period is the, the books of the Maccabees, which is the temple takeover period. That's where uh, the temple is um, infiltrated and the religion is changed from inside the, the, the temple. Um, and that's where the Maccabees have to fight back to bring back the traditional Jewish uh, Old Testament covenant religion. So those are the eight uh, quick periods in the Old Testament, eight. Um, so if you go to church history, I can show the same ones. Um, you have the beginning and foundation period, which is our Lord founding the church on the 12 apostles. And then you have the persecution period, the Roman persecution. And then Constantine legalizes the faith. And now you have this period where the church now is um, now it has its own land, like the, like the Israelites did. And they have to fight off heresies, like all the heresies. Those are the enemies of the church. And they also have to fight off barbarian tribes on the side, which is interesting. Um, so then the fourth period would be the period of the kings. So you have um, – actually, in, in church history, it's the empires. You have the Byzantine Empire is the very first protector of the church. Um, they, they receive their crown from the bishops at a certain point. But then, just like King Saul, they both disobey, and they have to find a new protector. So you know, Samuel, he, um, he anoints David, and the pope, he crowns Charlemagne, who, who founds the Holy Roman Empire in the West. Um, so just like in the Old Testament, King David and King Saul existed together for a while, but they had, they were, there was animosity, but also it was a very complicated relationship. So too did the, the Carolingian Empire, which is the Holy Roman Empire, and the Byzantine Empire have the same relationship, right? Um, and that, that existed for a while. And then um, uh, at the end of the uh, rebuilt St. Peter's Basilica, 
just as Saint Tom or Saint uh, Solomon's building the temple in the Old Testament. And then you have uh, Martin Luther. He uh, the the, uh, the fifth period now. He's breaking away um, and, and and taking the north into apostasy. The seventh period, or the I'm sorry, the sixth, excuse me, is um, the French Revolution, um, which would correspond with the Babylonian um, invasion of Jerusalem. Um, uh, it, it, it's a little complicated here, but the spoliation of the papal states is also part of this. I'll get into that later. All right, now, now um, the, the seventh period is, um, if you recall, in the Old Testament, it was when they got to go back to Jerusalem and keep it as a city-state. Well, the, the, in church history, that's the Lateran Treaty, where um, Mussolini gives a Vatican City back to the church, when previously they had no land because it was taken from them. They give it back to the church, and the church keeps Vatican City as a city-state. So that corresponds with that period. And then finally, then, the, the eighth period, then, the Books of the Maccabees, seems very much parallel with Vatican II, um, and we'll have to, that's, that's going to be the, the big topic I know. It's the most controversial one, but um, that's when you have a change of the liturgy, a change of many of the – well, we can argue about this, but a lot of the, the doctrines seemingly were changed as well, um, and, and the position of the – so anyway, that, that would, of course, we'll have to get into that later, but, but it does fall, does fall chronologically in, in parallel. So, um, so that, that's the broad brush uh, strokes of the, of the whole system there. Um, I, I do have a, a 500-page – book filled with details because i i really want to go deep into the details here and boy oh boy it does not disappoint it's amazing the details um uh, you know that that's for the seriously minded person who really is considering this to be true but um hopefully i could in these podcasts hopefully i can touch on like a mid-level of detail that doesn't have to get that specific unless you want to it's up to you you can take it wherever you want to go <laughs> well, no i i i, I want a you know, you need to lead this so you can help me understand this. So what would you like to, sure, to sure. do in the remaining time? We've got, what, about uh, 40 minutes, 45 minutes left in this episode. Sure. So okay. do you want to concentrate on period one, or what What would we do? Sure, yeah, we could do that. Um, yeah, let's, let's do that. I mean, you know, to be honest, um, the, the, the first period, beginning the foundation, um, many of the church fathers really have already touched a lot upon these parallels because remember, like, so I would argue this. I would say that um, there's two testaments. There's the New Testament and the Old Testament. The Old Testament is from the, the, found, the beginning of the world of creation Genesis until the coming of Christ, um, or actually the books of the Maccabees, well, either, yeah, the coming of Christ. Um, but then the New Testament starts off with the Gospels, but then I would argue that like, we're still in the New Testament. Um, like the the written pages of the New Testament, obviously, you know the the Bible contains them. But the, the very last book of the Old Testament, the New Testament, is the book of the, uh, the, the Revelation or the Apocalypse, which many understand to be the end of the world, right? So which hasn't which hasn't happened yet. So it's like we're in between. Like we're still in the New Testament, is what I would argue, right? So like um, the the church is the new Israel, and we're still living out that that story. So um, that's that's like one of the bases for um, these parallels, you know. to to say that the reason why church history is prefigured is because it's still part of the New Testament. Um, but anyway, going back to what I was saying about the church fathers, um, because the beginning of church history is is actually in the Bible, right? The Acts of the Apostles and the the Epistles of the Apostles and St. Paul and even the Gospels. There are a lot of those parallels between the beginning of the Old Testament and the beginning of church history are already done for us. You know, so for instance, you can have like St. Joseph as like a new Abraham. Um, he, um, uh, just like uh, Abraham, his wife, uh, Abraham's wife couldn't bear a child, uh, and then the angel comes and says, you're going to have a child, and he, she gives the child the name Isaac, 
And then the same thing with Our Lady. She she conceived uh, miraculously like Sarah did, and the angel came and named the child. Um, Abraham took his family down to Egypt. St. Joseph took his family down to Egypt. Um, Abraham had to he, he separated. He he, he was he sent his, he was going to send away Hagar, but God told Abraham to bring Hagar back. Well, St. Joseph was going to send away Our Lady, but a, an angel came to him in the dream and said that the, the child is holy, so don't do that. So, like, you know, there's all kinds of parallels with St. Joseph and Abraham. All right? Or you can say that our Lord has been uh, rightly, of course, um, shown to be the, the parallel for almost everybody in the Old Testament because he's the fulfillment of everything. Um, so he's like, you know, he's like a new Moses. He's like a new Jacob. So I don't have to get into all those things. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but see, here's, here's an interesting one that, that I have never seen before is that St. Peter – so in the Old Testament, you have 12 sons of Israel, and um, Joseph was the one who was selected to be the favorite, and he was given a special coat of many colors. Um, but um, so Joseph, um, he's the one that went down to Egypt, uh, as we know, and then um, later on his brothers all came down there, and they, and they bowed down to his authority. They did say it to Joseph. So then um, uh, Joseph also has his bones carried out with him, when he's dedicated, they have his bones carried out and venerated on the way back out of Egypt. Um, but anyway, let me go back to Joseph again. He, um, the Pharaoh changed Joseph's name to Zaphonathanea, and he gave Joseph a signet ring uh, as a sign that he had authority over all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh himself had more authority. So, but our Lord does the same to St. Peter that Pharaoh did to Joseph, because um, just, like, just like Joseph, St. Peter was also the chosen of the Twelve, and all of the apostles had to submit to St. Peter's authority. And our Lord changed St. Peter's name to, to Peter, from some Simon to Peter, just like Pharaoh changed Joseph's name. Um, Pharaoh gave Joseph a signet ring, and our Lord gave St. Peter the keys. And Pharaoh said, you're in charge of all of Egypt, and, and, and our Lord told St. Peter that, that you know, um, I, you're, my vicar, you're my vicar on earth, and, you know, when you speak, I speak through you. So, you know, you can see the clear parallel there. So like so, where um, Joseph, when, Joseph was in charge of the, of the grain by which he – uh, fed all of Israel. Um, Jesus is instructing Peter, feed my sheep. So is that that's kind that's of exactly that. yes. It, once you see it, everything opens up. Right? It, you're right, exactly. Or you could say the Pope is in charge of the storehouse of grace, like the the, the storehouse of indulgences and graces. That that that's where the keys open up in a sense. So you know he, he also can dispense of those to whom and when he pleases, like Joseph could. Right. It, 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 once, once, you, once you can see the things, it's, it, it abounds. But, all right, so, so moreover, so Joseph was responsible for bringing his family to the place that eventually would become the land of their persecution, Egypt. Just like St. Peter's responsible for bringing the church to Rome, which eventually would become the place of its persecution, the Roman persecution of the church. So like, it's, it's really complete um, how, how it all kind of works. It's kind of amazing. Um, so, um, so then you have, um, um, from that point, the persecution starts, and um, so Moses, uh, he's widely – this is not biblical, but it seems to be commonly understood that he was a prince of Egypt. Like he was raised in the pharaoh's house, and that there was a second prince as well, Ramses. Like they were raised together apparently. It's all the movies suggest. So it doesn't seem to be in the Old Testament though. I don't know why that is. But So um, there's two um, princes, and um, um, Moses, even though he's a prince of Egypt, his mother is a Hebrew or is- Israelite. Um, and so you have uh, – in church history, you have Constantine, princes of Rome. Um, at that time, Diocletian divided the, the Roman Empire into four parts, and he set over each part a junior and a senior emperor. So um, Constantine was one of the junior ones, and Maxentius was one of the other ones. 
just like in Egypt, um, you had two. So um, Constantine's mother was St. Helena, a Catholic, just like Moses' mother was an um, Israelite, which is strange for a prince of Egypt. It's kind of strange to have an Egyptian prince with an Israelite mother. Um, so Moses, um, he frees his people, um, but then as they're, as they're leaving, uh, Pharaoh's army, which is Ramses, he, or, yeah, Ramses, his army comes and he meets him at the, at the Red Sea, and that's where um, the Pharaoh's army drowns. And once the army drowns, and Pharaoh drowns too, I think he drowns, once that happens, the Israelites know definitively, once and for all, that they are now free from Egyptians. Uh, and the same thing happens with Constantine. Um, Constantine, he issues the Edict of Milan, which legalizes Christianity and, and stops the persecution in his half of the Roman Empire. But Maxentius, who, who was one point the other junior emperor, which has become a, the emperor now, he says, no way, I want to keep Rome pagan, and these Christians need to be persecuted. So they have a battle. It's called the Battle of Milden Bridge. And at that battle, guess who drowns with all his army? <laughs> it's Maxentius. <laughs> so, like, Maxentius and his army drown in the Tiber River, and once that happens, there's no more threats. There's no more um, institutional threats from the Roman Empire against Christians, and every Christian in the Roman Empire breathes a deep sigh of relief because the right person won the battle, and they know for sure the persecution is definitively over. So, like, that's that's pretty neat. Um, there, there's there's more parallels in there. I have them all written down. I'm, I'm just winging it off the top of my head. Um, but um, if, at any point, I can point people to the resources that will have, like, my, my studied notes about these things. Um, but um, um, so, so how would people be able to access some of those notes and look at this themselves? Oh, sure. Um, um, I have a website, and it's called um, – well, I named it after the last book of the Bible, so it's called Maccabean Rising, and I'll spell that. That's, that's M-A-C-C-A-B-E-A-N, then Uprising, U-P-R-I-S-I-N-G. Again, maccabeanuprising.com. So this okay. www com, and then there I'll have I have books and pamphlets and um, link to my YouTube channel which has a hundred videos on it and just all kinds of stuff. So. Okay, so now Old Testament, New Testament, where are we now? Mark, mark where we're at now in the history of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, um, what we've done tonight. Like, the, 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 sure, this, this very second, you know, like in 2023. In our presentation tonight, how far have we gone forward? Oh, gotcha. Okay, good. Yeah. That's a good question. So um, we're just about the year 320-something A.D., about. Okay. So we're getting, bumping right up against the Council of Nicaea. Right. Yes. Good. Right. Okay. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. Right. So. Um, then what comes next? Okay. Right. So now um, – so as I go through these, so I, I present the idea that it's chronological, and it is chronological because the major periods are all chronological. But inside of that chronology, there is a poetry that's it's less scientific. So, like for instance, sometimes you'll like it's hard to explain, but like you will see the chronology, but also you'll see things that kind of like that look like two things at once. It's like um, so it, it, there's there's some interpretation here. Um, but but overall, there's it's clearly there. So I, I should kind of say that at the outset, it's it is chronological, and I have to present it. I have to keep it. I need a sound bite to, to spit out. But if I if I said the complexity of it, I wouldn't be able to say it in, in a sentence, right? So it, it is very complex at the same time. Um, 
Um, but anyway, so to go back to what we're doing. So we're, we're about, like you said, about the Council of Nicaea. Very good, right? Okay. So if you recall then, Moses leads the um, Israelites out into the desert, um, out into the wilderness more specifically. And in the wilderness then, they have no uh, water and no food. So Moses uh, strikes the rock and water comes from the rock, right? So Constantine then, after he legalizes Christianity, he also takes them out in the wilderness. But let me tell you a little side story here. So in order to learn church history in detail, I relied a little bit on videos. Like I'd, I'd go on and find some old like documentary about Constantine. And um, um, I'm watching one about Constantine, and, and, and the commentator says, he says, so, uh, he says, after Constantine legalized Christianity, he led them out into the wilderness. And I was like, what? He, he led them out into the wilderness? What do you mean? That's what Moses did. And it says um, he founded the city of Constantinople. And in Constantinople at the time of its founding, was, was a no-man's land. There was an ancient Greek city there that was uninhabited, and there was, there was no roads up to it. It was, just, it was literally the wilderness. And so the commentator says that Constantine led him out to the wilderness. And then he says after that, and when I got out there, there was no water and no food. I'm like, this sounds a lot like Moses again. And so then so Constantine, to solve that problem, he starts to build an aqueduct. And the aqueduct is literally water that comes out of a rock. So here you have... Moses taking them out into the wilderness, and he strikes the rock to give them water, and then Constantine's doing the same thing. He goes out to the wilderness. In order to give them water, he builds an aqueduct, which is water from a rock. It's, the poetry is amazing. And then, mm-hmm. so they also don't have enough food. So Constantine, being the emperor of Rome, he diverts grain shipments that, that usually went to the city of Rome from uh, Egypt, and he diverts them to his new city of Constantinople. And he gives them free bread because he wants, he wants people to move to his new city. He wants to make it a Christian city. So he's attracting people with free bread and, and a new life, right? So as Moses gives them manna from heaven, Constantine gives them bread from Egypt, which is kind of a, a neat little twist. <laughs> you know, like it's pretty neat. Um, mm-hmm. So, okay. Um, then this, this period here uh, in church history is um, the, the Christians um, – Christianity has not yet become the legal de facto religion of this, the, the Empire of Rome. It's just been legalized. Um, so that doesn't happen until 380 under um, Theodosius. But in that, in that interim period, um, the Christians are struggling with now heresies are arising. All kinds of heresies are popping up, and they have to fight against Arianism, Marcionism, and a whole bunch of other ones. Um, and that's akin to the Israelites. As soon as they step foot out of Egypt and they're into the Promised Land, they're attacked by the Amalekites. Or when they get into the Promised Land, they have to fight the Moabites. They have to fight all these different um, uh, tribes, and they have to kind of like contend with them to establish their, their new nation under God's laws. So um, it's neat because you can see the, the heretics of the, the period of the Church Fathers as like the enemies in the books of the Judges. And there's one specific story that really stands out as a parallel which is um, one of the judges in the Old Testament. I can never pronounce his name. It's A-O-D. I say A-O-D or A-O-D, whatever. I don't know how to pronounce it. But he's, he's fighting. Um, there's this one, um, the Moabite king, Eglon, and he's oppressing the, the Israelites. And so um, this judge, A-O-D, he goes in there with a sword concealed in his um, shirt, and he goes to the door of the king's chamber, and he closes the doors, at, and it says in there, as if the king is going to the bathroom. Like, the, the guards aren't concerned. He, he somehow manages to sneakily get in there. And the guards think that the, the king is relieving himself. But really what's happening is he's stabbing the king in the stomach with this, the sword. And it's very descriptive. It says that all his, all his guts come out with the sword. So you can see the, the, the vivid imagery of disembowelment is, is happening in this story. So you have now in church history, you have one of the greatest arch heretics of the early church period is Arius. Um, he starts the Arian heresy. And so... 
um, he, he gets called to Constantinople, and he goes into a bathroom when he gets in there. This is how he dies. And in the bathroom, he's, he's in there, and his friends are waiting outside for him for a long time, wondering what's happening to Arius. Why is he in the bathroom so long? So after a long time, he goes in to check on him, and there he is, dead on the ground. When he was going to the bathroom, all his bowels fell out and spilled out onto the floor, and he died. Very strange, but look it up. Google it. That's how Arius dies. So you have the same elements of um, thinking someone's in the bathroom for a long time, um, being disemboweled, and then also being at the same time period the, the, the arch enemy of God's people in parallel. And I'm like, that's just too amazing to be a coincidence. So, I mean, so what, what it leads you to is that the church fathers are like the judges, and the, um, the heretics are like the enemies of the church, of the, of the judges. And it's a, this whole period, which you could say the, judge, the period of the judges parallels with the period of the church fathers. And um, I have more analysis on that as well, but um, it's, 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 it's in there. Um, in this period, though, um, in the Old Testament, there's the, the story of Ruth and Boaz. Um, that's given to us in the context of being in that period of the church fathers. And we know this because it says at the beginning of the book of Ruth that there was not yet a king in Israel. King Saul and the end of the Egyptian persecution is the period of the judges. So that's why we know that Ruth took, takes place in that period. And similarly, in the time of the church fathers, we also have a very important um, story of a, of a king and a princess, um, and, and there's a great conversion in there that's pivotal, pivotal uh, for Western Christianity, and that's the story of um, St. Clotilda and Clovis. Right? So um, there's a million parallels between the story of Ruth and Boaz and St. Clotilda and Clovis, um, which is chronological, and all the elements are the same. Um, I don't know if you want to get into those now. Uh, let me stop now and see what you think. I can go on forever. No, I, I, I'd like to hear you get into this because I've never heard anybody draw this particular parallel before. So I'd, I'd like to hear you explore sure. this. Okay, great. All right, so, okay. So, um, first of all, we need to recognize that um, because so Ruth was a Moabite and Boaz was a wealthy landowner. And so, Ruth, um, she comes to Israel because of her mother in law, um, Naomi. And, um, um, because she's a foreigner, she's not accepted, but she is, she's the only one living in, um, amongst the Israelites, Bethlehem specifically, um, who's a Moabite. Uh, but she's accepted because Naomi takes her under her wing. But Ruth converts, and she believes in the God of Israel. She rejects her pagan gods. So um, Ruth eventually marries Boaz. And it's very touching. It's, it's a love story, but it's more than a love story. But they, they do fall in love, which is not always the case. And then um, their union, the union of Ruth and Boaz, produces a uh, son, Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and then Jesse has King David. So the implication here is that without Ruth converting, King David would not have been born. And King David was the, the great monarch of the Old Testament. You know, um, he wrote all the Psalms. He was a man and, after and all. The larger, heart. Picture, the larger picture is the Messiah comes out of that same, that same oh, line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Of course, yes. Okay, so absolutely. All right, so, um, but that all is, is pivotal, pivot, pivotal um, upon Ruth's conversion. So then, um, uh, let's see, I, I draw some more parallels here. Uh, oh, yeah, so one more thing about the story of Ruth and Boaz is that intrinsic to the story is like this issue of the land that Boaz wants to buy um, because Ruth, Ruth can retain the land. If Boaz wants the land, he has to marry her, which he's glad to do. Um, it's... It, there's a lot of issues with land in there and ownership, ownership of land, and specifically the, the fact that she's a female and he's a male relates to how land can be owned. It's, I have notes on it. I can't remember exactly the details, but th those are the issues at stake. 
Now, in church history, you have Clovis and St. Clotilda. Now, in church history, Clovis is the pagan or the Arian. I've read both accounts. He's either an Arian or a pagan. And then St. Clotilda is from Burgundy, which had already become Catholic at this point. And this is the year, I think this is the year around 500, early, like 490, around 500 uh, A.D. And um, mm-hmm. so St. Clotilda, she agrees to marry Clovis, and she travels to the kingdom of the Franks, who none of them are Catholic. So she's the only one there of the true religion, just like um, uh, Ruth was the only one there of a pagan religion, essentially. Um, so Clovis converts, and then, of course, when he converts, all of the Franks convert with him. And then so um, their union, uh, Clovis and Clotilda, um, because all the Franks convert, that sets the stage for a great Frankish king to arise in a couple generations who becomes the new King David in church history, and that's Charlemagne. Because um, Charlemagne, would, he comes around in the 700s, and he never – like I was reading historical – like the um, historians, you know, and they'll, they'll say things like this. They'll say without Clovis's conversion, Charlemagne would never have arisen as a great Catholic king because there would have been no Catholics there to arise from. Right? Hmm. I mean they could have converted later, but, but the historians have always recognized up until the modern day when they twist everything around that, 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 that conversion of Clovis was so pivotal to Western Christianity. Um, so you can see the correlation between King David arising from their union and Charlemagne arising from – uh, Clovis's. Um, but Clovis also institutes what's called the Salic Law. Because when he converted, um, a, lot of the, a lot of Franks, they all unified under him. And then what, um, they had to figure out a system of land ownership that would make sense of all the chaos. So um, he, he, it's called Salic Law, and in doing so, he specifies very clearly that, that land is only hereditary and passed down through the males. Women can't own land. They can, in some versions of Salic Law, they can kind of be they can kind of be carriers of it or like kind of like placeholders for it, but the, the, her son would have to get it immediately afterwards, which is which is, anyway, it's the same the same concepts are generally there in the book of Ruth as well. So it's so awesome. <coughs> and not, you know what to mention, of course, I forgot this is uh, you probably recognize this, but Clovis converts, Clovis converts, and then so does um, so does uh, Ruth. So that conversion is pivotal too. So mm-hmm. um so that, that sets the stage then for the, the, the kings, the period of the kings, um, which is which is important. Um, so, um, um, so so moving on, we have um, in the Old Testament King Saul. Um, he's the first king of Israel, and it's important because he accepts his his anointing from Samuel, who's God's prophet. Um, you know, Saul didn't proclaim himself king; he, he accepted it from the holy man. Right. But Saul. He 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 um he he was trying to aggrandize himself. He wanted to make himself great. He he, he at one point he erected a monument to himself when he would not kill um, the Amalekites. Uh, and then Samuel comes and says that um, God's going to take away your kingdom and give it to someone who is worthy. And, and of course Samuel or then Saul goes and rips some of the, the cloak off of Samuel who, who, who continues to walk away from him. Um, so you have in church history you have the Byzantine Empire. Um, who, who became officially Catholic, but they didn't ex- start accepting their crowns from the church until like the year six, like the late 600s, early 700s. I can't remember which one. It was close. So just like Saul does that, so does the Byzantine Empire. But the Byzantine, Byzantine Empire was very proud because they, they saw themselves as the continuation of the Roman Empire, which they were, and they had like this long tradition of like how great they were, <laughs> basically, right? So. They didn't defer to the church. I mean, the Byzantines kind of always thought that the emperor was the head of the church, not the pope, right? So 
they didn't. So the Pope would be like Samuel. They didn't listen to the papacy, and the, the Pope corrected them many times with, with the iconoclastic heresy in the 700s. Um, there were various Byzantine members that were excommunicated. But at one point in the year 800, um, I think it was Pope – oh, I can't remember which one it was. But he, he recognized that they couldn't be trusted anymore, and they had to find a new protector of the church. So they turned towards Charlemagne. right? So in the year 800, um, Charlemagne is called um, to, to the Vatican or to St. Peter's Basilica, the old one. And he was crowned by surprise on Christmas Day. I mean, Charlemagne claims he had no idea it was going to happen. He was just, it was by surprise. Um, and so that, in doing so, now you had two emperors in Christendom. You had the Byzantine emperor, who was still nominally uh, a, a, a Catholic, because they weren't in schism yet. There was no schism. There was just one church. And you also had the Holy Roman Emperor to the West. And so, like, the immediate reaction of the Byzantines was, like, this is no good. This little upstart, little barbarian Frank emperor here, and, and compared to how great the Byzantine emperor was, they, he looked ridiculous. But nonetheless, it was the Carolingians or the Western Roman Empire that was faithful to the church while the Byzantines thumbed their nose at the Pope constantly. So you have the same thing with King David and King Saul in the Old Testament, where after Saul um, rejects the word of God a couple times, I think it was twice, Samuel says, That's, I mean, God told me to go anoint another one. So he goes to the house of Jesse, and um, David's called in from the fields, and, and right there on the spot, Samuel anoints him, and David didn't know what was happening. It was by surprise, just like Charlemagne right. was anointed by surprise, right? So like, okay, now I'm the new king. <laughs> but um, so, you know, um, Saul um, would take David into his wing, and David would defeat all of the enemies of Saul. And um, then they would say that the people would claim, or Saul kills 1,000, David kills 10,000, which made Saul jealous. That was also happening in church history because the Byzantines found themselves not able to defeat these pagan uh, pagan peoples, the Magyars and the Bal the Bulgars too, or the Bulgarians. The, the Byzantines couldn't defeat them uh, soundly, whereas um, Otto II, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at that time, in, in like the nine hundreds, he swept through and, and eliminated the, the Magyars, and they later converted. So Saint Stephen of Hungary was the first Christian king of of Hungary, but previous to him, they were all pagans. But it was, the, it was the West that could do it. The East couldn't. And the Byzantines became increasingly jealous at the West's military conquest and their fame, whereas the Byzantines, who thought themselves better than the West, was, was struggling to protect themselves and, and their citizens as well. Right? So, so the citizens of those lands would turn to the West instead of the East for protection, just like how David was the one who defeated Goliath and Saul was too incapable of doing it. So right. it's amazing. Um, and then so, so the Byzantines eventually – oh, go ahead. Just so I understand this, okay, so it's generally accepted that David is a typology of Christ. David points forward to Christ. Uh, Absolutely. Especially of course. Angel Gabriel Every, says to Mary everything that. Everything to Christ. Everything right. does. But don't forget also that, that the Catholic Church is the mystical body of Christ. So to have the Old Testament also point to the history of the church is still pointing to Christ, just in his mystical well, body. Well, that's, that's what I was going to ask you. Is, is, is Charlemagne really pointing to Christ, or is Charlemagne pointing to David, who is pointing to Christ, in your, in your view? Are they, are they both mirrors pointing back to Christ, or is it, is, is it a line yeah. pointing back to the Old Testament and then to the New Testament? I wouldn't say Charlemagne's pointing to Christ. He's not even a saint. So, I mean, you know, I mean, any saint would point to Christ infinitely more than Charlemagne would, who was not, you know, was not, did not, was not recognized for his sanctity. But just he was a great a, defender of Christianity. As a figure, the office, as a figure. 
Yeah, it is, it's a figure. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, it's possible. In fact, as it's a fact that the Old Testament has many figures to it. Like, like one story in the Old Testament has many. You can understand that many. There's many. There's many prefigurements that that it fulfills. Um, I'm just talking about these chronological ones. So, in, in, in no way am I undermining the church's teachings that already pre-exist about how they all point to Christ. There's no doubt about it. In fact, let me add this just to kind of like solidify my point. Um, at the end of the Gospels, um, our Lord appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he remember he he shows them all the ways the scriptures are fulfilled in him. Like he's, he's in, in essence showing them like everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in me. It's all pre, everything prefigured me. And it says yeah, and, we're not and, our hearts and, burning within us when he when he did this to us. Right? And I think most so, people get that. But what what I'm trying to say is that it looks like okay, so if the if the Old Testament there's a mirror set up in the Old Testament there are, and all of these Old Testament personalities and events point to Christ, it seems like there's a mirror on the opposite side in the church history that's also reflecting back. Oh, yeah, you could say that for sure. I mean, church history would also reflect Christ, too. I, I would completely agree. Yeah, is, is that what you mean? Like, church history would yeah. also reflect Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's kind of like typology in reverse. You could see it that way. Sure. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I'm, that's that's perfectly fair. I, I, I don't see no problem with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so... Yeah. What next? And after we get uh, what 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 comes next in the, in the order in the chronology? Okay, I'll, I'll I'll try to speed up a little bit here. Um, so King Saul is defeated. Um, at the Battle of Gilboa. That's where there's two accounts. One account is he commits suicide, or he tells someone else to kill him, uh, and the Philistines destroy him. Um, the Byzantine Empire, but it, but his descendants live on. So he has Jonathan, and he has Mithibosheth, and he has Isabosheth. Those are his three sons that I know of. There might be another one. But the, his descendants live on. Jonathan dies with him, I guess, actually. But his other two sons live on. And um, the Byzantine Empire is dealt a mortal wound at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071. And that's when the whole uh, peninsula of Anatolia, or present-day Turkey, is taken by the, by the Ottomans from the Byzantine Empire. Um, but, but there are little areas that live on um, in southern Greece and other places where the Byzantines, the, the leadership fled to those islands to, to preserve the empire, um, even though the, the heartland was taken. Um, so then you have uh, King Saul, uh, or King David takes the throne um, eventually. I'm, I'm going to skip some stuff here. But then um, he goes on, he, he's one war after the other, where he goes and defeats all of the enemies of Israel. And he makes finally Israel free from enemies. It has a, a period of peace in which Solomon can reign from. And in church history, you have the Crusades serve that function. The church launches multiple Crusades here and there, and they, they secure the borders of Western Europe. No more after the Crusades are the Muslims trying to, to come into Western Europe and to take over, um, uh, at least not until the 1500s, that is. I'll get into that later. Um, and so finally, after the Crusade period, there's about 100, 200, 300 years of it, about, um, that's when the Renaissance is launched. And so the Renaissance is clearly like the reign of King Solomon. Um, the Renaissance starts off um, uh, with wanting to rebuild uh, St. Peter's Basilica and make a new one, the, the new St. Peter's Basilica. And um, King Solomon does the same thing. He, he builds the temple. Um, and you have um, this emphasis on art and architecture and um, uh, of learning. Um, King Solomon wanted to do all those things, and, and uh, that's what happens in the Renaissance as well. Same, same, same principles at play. Wealth, of course, wealth is another big one. Solomon is fabulously rich, 
and the Renaissance is the, the Medici family, the banker family that it comes to power during the Renaissance, and they're funding all this artwork, and you have banking system comes up into play for the first time. All this is happening during the Renaissance, clearly like King Solomon's time. King Solomon, I didn't know this until I read the details, he sends a fleet of ships out to go search for gold in the mysterious land of Ophir. It's like one passage in one of the books. But you have the Spanish are going out during this time and looking for gold in the New World, right? So um, the ships are going out looking for gold in both, both times. It's, and then, um, so then finally, the corruption of Solomon and his high taxes on the people um, eventually wear on the people a lot. Like, and so when Solomon dies, his son is called Rehoboam. He's asked by um, this other fellow, Jeroboam. <laughs> they all rhyme, I'm sorry. But Jeroboam asks Rehoboam, are you going to continue the high taxes of your father? Because if you do, the, 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 the ten northern tribes aren't going to follow you anymore. And um, Rehoboam comes back and he, he, he says uh, – he takes the advice of his younger friends instead of the elders of Israel. And his young friends say, don't listen to him. You're the king. Don't let him boss you around. And so he right. refuses them. So then Jeroboam, he goes off and he says, well, we're, I, I told where, him so. This is where he said that um, my father beat you with whips, but I will yeah. beat you with scorpions. Be oh, with scorpions. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Real nice. So, yeah, real nice. Right. So now you have, um, you have Martin Luther. Okay. So remember Martin Luther's initial beef was that the indulgences of the church were used to fund St. Peter's Basilica. So like, you had the papal preachers at the time, Pope Leo X who was a Medici, he wanted, he was, he was, a, he was a spendthrift, by the way, uh, and very luxurious life. He ate voluptuous, magnificent dinners all the time. He was living the high life. Um, I, you know, he just was, right? Um, and so he wanted to fund in part um, the, funding, the, the building of St. Peter's Basilica. So he'd send out these preachers to go preach for indulgences, which is not condemned by the church. Like the Council of Trent didn't condemn um, raising money from indulgences, but it condemned the abuse of it. It says don't right. abuse it, right? And so Martin Luther was, was angry about this, this indulgence practice. Jeroboam, by, contra, by, by comparison, he was upset about the high taxes of Solomon. Now, taxes aren't wrong, but the abuse of taxes are, just like the indulgences. Um, so, right. so Luther said, you know, stop these indulgences. And so he eventually breaks from the church, and he brings Northern Basically, Europe into the the parallel here is that uh, for greed, for purpose of greed, they're abusing their clerical authority. That's the parallel. Yeah, yeah, that's it's very yeah. fair to say. Yeah, right. And Council of Trent backs it up because the Council of Trent, you know, does condemn the abuse of indulgences. So we, we have a church authority telling us it's, it's okay to think that. But yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. So then Jeroboam, he sets up two golden calves. Um, one in oh no Ephraim and one in Dan. I think I'm getting those two places right. And so he says to the, all the Israelites in the north, he says, I want you to stop going to the temple to offer sacrifice. That's all done. Um, you're not to have any allegiance to the king of Judah. I'm your new king. And he says these two golden calves are these are these were your gods the whole time. Like like they're the ones who brought you out of Egypt. They're the ones who are really had the power this whole time. Um, we just forgot right. about them, and you know, and things got all mixed up. But I'm going to bring you back to your true, the true origin of your of your of your of your beliefs, right? As the golden calf. Like, so Luther, like, <laughs> yeah, it's right, yeah, because Luther says he, he says no more going to mass. The mass is outlawed in Protestant land, so there's the sacrifice you can't go to. And he says no more allegiance to the Pope, which is like the King of Judah, right? The, the Pope in Rome and the King of Judah. And then he says 
um, I have two new planks or doctrines that we're going to follow, sola scriptura and sola fide. And he says these Which actually are actually what the golden calves, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And they were they were the whole they were like he says like in the past like we got it we got mixed up and thought it was the church but it hasn't been it's always these two doctrines so we're gonna go back to our original Christian beliefs so says Luther right so and oh then oh this is so neat so then Jeroboam he sets up a new feast day for his people to give them something to celebrate that's not from their old religion and it gives a date on when he sets it up and this is in my material it's a Jewish Jewish calendar date. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I wonder if there's, like, is there any Protestant feast day that's distinctly Protestant? And I'm like, yeah, there's one, Re- Reformation Day, um, yeah. the day they celebrate Martin Luther tacking up his theses onto the door in Wittenberg, Germany. So I take yeah, Reformation October 31st. Day, October 31st, right? So I take that day, and I, I, I put it into a Jewish calendar date, and it's, like, the same day as the Jeroboam feast day. You've got to be kidding. It was amazing. It was I, – I got shivers when I did that. I, I, was like, I was like in awe at that. And that's happened many times since. Like when, when I see parallels and I'll, I'll, I'll translate dates, you know. And it's, so the Jewish date's a calendar date on, on a lunar calendar, so it's never one date. It, it, it floats. It's like a 10-day a floating date on our calendar. But it was, it, was in, it was in that range. It was in right in there, you know. So like some <laughs> years it will fall on that date, some years it won't. But it wasn't like – it was right in there, you know. So I'm like, that's amazing. And so I'd like to offer that as just a little anecdotal interesting tidbit <laughs> um okay so so then then the protestants um um we start to have in church history we have the 30 years war the wars of religion and we're trying to forcibly dethrone these protestant princes and bring these poor people back into the catholic church and in the old testament that, that was their first response too the first response was to go to war and they'd have battles um it, at this time it was the new king um abia abia who was trying to bring them back in but eventually the wars they were stalemates and they didn't work. So they had a peace deal, right? And they started making friends with the North and they started intermarrying with them. And in church history, after the wars of religion and they fizzled because everyone was exhausted from fighting each other, they had like the, uh, the Treaty of Westphalia and other, uh, ed- the Edict of Nantes. Was that one of them too? Like, but anyway, the point was that they would make peace deals and stop the wars and they simply coexisted with the Protestants in Europe. Same, same exact phenomenon. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's almost seven o'clock. Um, what do you think? Yeah, Can why we take we, a break why here? Don't we, why don't we break it right here and okay. pick it up next weekend? Make a clean break right here. Sounds good. I, I thank you. I, I, I really enjoyed being able to do this. Thank you. Yeah, this is this is really really interesting. I look forward to picking it up one week from today. Okay, sounds great. All right, have a great week, sir. Okay, John. Thank you. Nice talking to you. All right, bye.